Hello, everyone. I'm Chris. I podcast all the things. As Stephen said, I podcast about programming languages by myself. I podcast about programming languages with my wife. SAP.py is a double pun because .py is the extension for Python programming, and SAPI is how my wife and I are when we're being romantic together. So the podcast has both. We also only have three episodes because we have small children, so it doesn't happen that often. But it's fun when we get to do it. Uh, the micro podcast he mentioned, Run With Me, is a podcast about running that I record while running. So you can check that out sometime. I'll probably start recording episodes again in a few weeks. I kind of tapered off after I got pneumonia this summer because that was kind of hard. Uh, let's talk about podcasting. How many people in here listen to podcasts? Five. Sweet. That's actually higher than the population in general, though it is growing. So... Many of you will not have heard podcasts. How many of you, though, have heard of Serial? So a fair number of you and some who aren't podcast listeners. Uh, that one was one of the better known ones. There are, there's an increasing uptake in podcasting right now, but a lot of people don't realize how long podcasting has been around. It's been around since the early 2000s. Uh, it came on pretty shortly after RSS feeds, which let you get updates from blogs without checking blog, blog websites. Somebody thought, hey, what if we just stuck a special tag in this that told us where to find some audio files, and then we can just download them to our computers automatically. And that takes us to what a podcast actually is. A podcast is, this is the best definition I've been able to come up with after a couple of years of thinking about it, audio you know when the professor when the instructor's phone rings in class, <laughs> Stephen, come on. Uh, podcasts are non-music audio distributed via the internet, and all of those pieces are important. It's audio distributed via the internet that distinguishes it from radio because there are lots of things that are audio and not music that are distributed that aren't on the internet, and we just call that radio. A, by contrast, podcasts are non-music distributed via the internet specifically. And it's non-music because, well, if it were music distributed by the internet, we'd call that Spotify or iTunes or something like that. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. There are podcasts about music and podcasts often integrate music, but podcast is a spoken form. It's kind of like the analogy to talk radio or public radio or things like that. But as we'll see in a couple minutes, it includes lots of things that might not ever make it onto a radio station, like Stevens and My Podcast or a podcast about learning a Rust programming language. These are just not things you would ever hear on the radio. I cannot actually imagine what the experience of hearing a programming language podcast on the radio would be like. That would be pretty weird. So... It's distinct from radio in the sense of its medium, how it's distributed. It's also often, though not always, distinct from radio in the sense of genre. There is some overlap. How many of you have heard of the book or the radio show Freakonomics? Okay, fair number. That's also distributed as a podcast. And in fact, it probably has substantially more listeners in podcast form than on radio form, but it's produced by a radio station in New York and goes out over the radio in New York. Now, they, they do their ads a little differently when they ship it as a podcast and whatnot, but it's both. So clearly, you can have shows that cross that line because there are shows that cross that line. A lot of NPR shows are this way. Planet Money, uh, they're reporting on economics is played on the radio and played in 
podcast form. Interestingly, those episodes are often a bit different from each other. They'll cut them differently and edit them differently because a radio audience is different from a podcast audience. NPR listeners expect five to seven minutes at most for most shows on the radio. But NPR podcast listeners expect 30 minutes of content because with the exception of my Run With Me podcast and other things that are really short like that, which are doing their own unique little thing, most of the time people expect anywhere at a minimum from 15 to 20 to up to three hours worth of content in a single podcast episode. And if three hours sounds crazy to you, it also sounds crazy to me. But there are quite a few podcasts out there that that actually do that. The other thing that does tend to be different, apart from shows that are co-produced, like Freakonomics or Planet Money, is that you tend to do different things in how you produce a podcast from how you produce a radio show. You're going to write it differently. You're going to get guests or work it out with co-hosts differently. You're going to probably put different value into the amount of editing you do. There's a lot more amateur uh, podcasting than amateur radio just a fact of the the realities of production. You can produce a podcast in your basement or your closet or your bedroom, as I normally do. You really are going to have a hard time doing that with radio, not least because you have to have a way to beam things into the air for people to hear on their radio station. And you have legal restrictions on that because radio airwaves are a limited resource that is controlled by the government. The, The internet is not that thing. So... Lots of different concerns and considerations that distinguish podcasting from radio, as you might generally think of it. And one of the most important of these to remember is that though there is some overlap, there are things you can do in a podcast that you literally can't do in radio, and vice versa. If you think about morning radio, your kind of normal morning talk show radio, where you've got people driving to work and you're talking about the traffic and the weather for the day and... You know, an accident might have happened over there and cracking jokes and everything else that's tied into current events. That show would not work as a podcast. You could distribute it that way, but its value basically ceases to exist after the morning in which it's produced. A podcast, by contrast, is often, however timely it may be, something that can be consumed anywhere in a span of weeks, sometimes months or years, depending on what kind of podcast you're talking about. So, On the flip side, you might have a long-form fiction podcast where you are basically doing audio dramas. Uh, There have been a couple of high-profile ones of these over the last few years. Those aren't the kinds of things you could really do on radio. Now, 70 years ago, that might not have been true. I actually listened to reruns of The Lone Ranger when I was growing up, and that was cool. Hi-ho, Tonto, and horse sound effects. And that's just not really a thing we do now with radio, though. It's not an inherent limitation of the medium, but it is not a genre that really exists there. By contrast, there's a lot of long-form storytelling happening in podcasts because you can just get an update as people are able to produce it, and you can get some really interesting shows out of that. So a few other genres you might think about because, again, genre and medium aren't the same. Form is not the same as how you get it. Things I've heard, in addition to fiction, you might get reporting. Reporting can have a lot of different forms within that genre. You might have NPR-style economics reporting. You could also have the kind of story I heard a few years, or it was last year. One guy named Mike Hurley went and interviewed a bunch of different independent app developers in the Apple and Google ecosystems and put together what was really a 
long-form report, almost like you would see in magazine journalism, about the experience of developing for app stores today. You couldn't really do that on, on radio. It's pretty specific to the podcast medium. But it's also very different from NPR-style reporting, which is almost always one-off. Here's one episode that talks about one piece of content. And even when they do somewhat longer series, which is rare, it's not that kind of deep, detailed dive on a subject like that one was. You also have what is easily the most common form of podcast historically, so much so that it's very much a joke. And that's the two or three white guys talking about tech, usually Apple, let's be honest. Uh, winning slowly? that Stephen and I do is notably two white guys talking about tech. Now, as we'll talk about in a minute, we, we put a bit of a spin on that, but there is actually a reason that's the most common form. And that's because monologuing is hard and monologuing well is really hard. Talking into a microphone by yourself for 45 minutes in a way that's going to keep an audience interested in you is very difficult. You know, even a good lecturer in a university context can get boring, especially if you're not super engaged on the particular topic of the day. That's just as true in podcasting, and you don't have things like facial expressions trying to keep you engaged in the context of a podcast. So mono monologuing is hard, and doing the kinds of editorial work that make for those kinds of interviews to be good is also a lot of work. We'll, we'll talk a little about editing, but Stephen will talk a lot more about editing independently when you get into the mechanics of how you do that. Editing is hard work. It takes a long time to edit audio, especially when you're just getting going. That's doubly true if you're layering in music. That's triply true if you're layering in multiple guests. It's quadruply true if you're trying to put together that kind of long-form journalistic thing. That doesn't mean it's not worth doing. And for many of you who are thinking about journalism and thinking about ways to tell stories with journalism that matter, that might be a kind of thing to think about and invest in doing and to learn how to do. But the reason that discussion is most common is because you can set up a Skype call and both people record their end of the Skype call and drop those into a file and line them up. And that's really all you have to do. You could export that and upload it. Now, I would say to make a good discussion podcast takes some more than that in terms of how you make your content, in terms of how you think about writing your content, in terms of what editing you do even with that. But that's a pretty straightforward form to do. And it's also a lot easier to listen to two people talking than to one person talking. Among other things, because jokes tend to go over a lot better when you have another person to laugh at them. If I make a joke in the middle of New Rust Station talking about programming languages, well, I hope the audience laughs at them, but I don't actually know. So, you know, it's just a little nicer to have a discussion partner. You also will hear a lot of interviews for the same reason. And those interviews can range from the aforementioned cut together tightly in NPR or behind the app fashion to much more broad ranging discussion. There's one I listen to sometimes called no Code Newbie, where the interviewer who has a an obnoxiously fantastic voice, you should listen to an episode of that podcast just to listen to her voice because I wish my voice were that cool. Uh, but she just interviews people who range from really well-known in programming circles to just started programming six months ago and nobody has heard of them, but they're doing interesting things. And those are just totally free-form discussions. She does some editing, but she just asks them questions and then listens to the answer. That's totally different. And then somewhere in between, you have a show like 
what I've listened to called Mars Hill Audio Journal, which is more like the kind of thing you might get on NPR where you have interview and commentary interspersed. Again, alternation of voices is helpful for the audience and it's just easier to record interviews or dialogues than it is to, to monologue. You can do monologues, but as we'll talk about in content production here in a couple minutes, content preparation, I should say, you basically need a script. Now, you can get away with not having one maybe if you're doing something like my running microcast, but for the most part, you're going to need a script and they're just a lot more work, but they do exist. I make a couple of them, so they're possible to do and do well. So let's say that you've decided podcasting is awesome and you want to go make a podcast. Or let's say that you have an instructor in your writing class who's told you that you need to make a podcast. How do you do it? Well, number one, microphone. Probably not this one. This one's very expensive. And number two, recording software. Probably not that one. That one's also pretty expensive. We'll look in just a moment in my recommendations that way. But the most basic mechanics of podcasting are record some audio onto your computer and then put it on the internet. It really is actually pretty simple to do that. Doing it really well is hard, but it's, it's not complicated to do at a basic level. Microphone-wise, please, 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 please do not, under any circumstances, try to record a podcast with a microphone that's built into your laptop. It's terrible, I promise. Just... Just don't do it. It'll sound screechy and scratchy and you'll get background noise and no one will be able to understand what you're saying and your audience will hate you. And even if your parents tell you that they loved it, they're lying. It, it's bad. Just don't do it. But you don't have to spend the $225 that this microphone costs and the associated $100 on an XLR interface and the $25 on a cable. You don't have to do that. How many people here have a set of headphones that came with their phone and includes a microphone. Almost everybody's hands went up in the room. If you don't, you can get those for 15 to $20. Those come with pretty decent microphones. The ear pods that come with iPhones in particular are very good, but other phone manufacturers as well, they, if you think about it, have to be pretty good because the other person on the end of the person on the other end of a phone call has to be able to understand what you're saying, even in pretty bad conditions. When I record my running podcast, I take my Apple ear pods and hold the microphone up near my lips while I'm running and speak into it. And it doesn't pick up that much wind noise. There's some, there's some background noise, but for given the fact that I'm running, you know, seven, eight miles an hour. And so even if there's no wind, there's wind it does pretty well. That is actually probably the cheapest you can get in for reasonable quality audio. Couple tips if you're doing that, don't let it just sit down against your shirt because as you move around, it'll scratch. I recorded an interview with someone for Neuro Station recently and she kept doing that and moving around and so there are going to be a whole bunch of places in the recording of her that it squeaks and scratches and whatnot because it was just sliding back and forth across her shirt. And that's not a big deal when you're on a phone conversation, but if you're the host of a podcast, you don't want to do that. Moving up from there, you should be aware there are two broad kinds of microphones you can use. Those are USB microphones and XLR microphones. And that's, I should say, those are the two ways you connect to the computer. XLR microphones have attachments that look like this. USB microphones have attachments that look like USB cords, which are all used to probably. If you're not, I'm shocked. And here's a computer with a USB microphone attached to it. We can talk about that later. Uh, 
XLR mics are often better quality. They often have lower noise. They also nearly always cost more. You can get in with a pretty darn good mic for, depending if you get it on sale or not, $40 to $80. There's a microphone called the Audio-Technica ATR 2100 USB, which does both USB and XLR, depending on what you have to connect it to. And when you see it on sale, it's 40 bucks. It's never more than 80. It's a very good mic. It sounds almost as good as this one for about a third to maybe a fifth, depending on if you get it on sale of the price. So that's a great step up from your iPhone headphones if you're looking to bump up a bit. My general recommendation though is start by recording some episodes with whatever microphone you have, including that EarPods microphone or whatever else, and see if you like it. You don't want to spend large amounts of money on something that you ultimately decide you don't enjoy at all. And you can resell microphones, but it's not a great, great market, etc. So, so get some experience before you invest lots of money. And the same thing basically goes for software. You can do all of the editing you need to do with software you can get for free that may actually already be on your computer. Again, if you can record it from a microphone and then put the file someplace, that's really all you need. In terms of doing editing work, and Stephen, again, will cover more of this later in the class, you basically should use GarageBand or Audacity when you're first starting. Um, now, in your specific case, there are some tools in the library that you should know about. These are all on the computers in your library. GarageBand, you'll note, is one of those, and I would actually highly recommend just using that. It does everything you need for introductory amateur podcasting, and I use amateur here descriptively, not as an insult. I'm an amateur podcaster. I'm a pretty awesome amateur podcaster, if I do say so myself, but I'm an amateur podcaster. I spent the first year of our work on Winning Slowly editing with GarageBand. Uh, moving up from there into free things, Audacity, that sentence didn't work at all free things that you can get on your computer at home. If you have a Mac, you have a license to GarageBand. That's actually true on iOS devices as well. iPads have licenses for it. And you can actually do some of this editing on iPads. It's pretty great, impressively enough. Audacity is free. It's cross-platform. You can get it on Linux, Windows, or Mac OS. So if you're doing this outside of your class assignment when you're not in the library, those are the places I would start. Audacity is not amazing but it'll get the job done and you can use it on whatever computer you have, however old. Uh, GarageBand is pretty decent. It's more tuned for music production than for this kind of audio editing, but it will get the job done and frankly, it'll do it pretty well. So start there. If you want to move up from there and you find that you really, really love podcasting and you want to be faster and more proficient and have more advanced tools, I point people to a tool called Hindenburg Journalist, which is $95 and is totally oriented around this kind of editing work. It's very, very good. If I hadn't already had a license for Logic, I would have bought that instead. If you do music production as well, you should invest in one of the digital audio workstations that does those. You might look at Logic, you might look at Reaper, you might look at Pro Tools, etc. But that's really something you only need if you're going to be doing music as well as audio. And those kinds of tools are there primarily for editing. You actually don't even need those to record. On a Mac, you can just open up QuickTime and start recording. 
Uh, you can do similar on Windows, though having Audacity is helpful. Steven records every episode of Winning Slowly by just running the audio into Audacity. So you can record, do whatever minimal editing you need with free tools, and that's how I recommend you get going. Let's talk about content. A podcast is not actually interesting unless you say interesting things in it. You could record random bird noises for an hour, and that, I mean, that might be a podcast if you want to do that. I commend you, you know, have fun. But in general, podcasts, you want to say something interesting, and you want to do something interesting in it. So you want to pick a topic, and as with most writing that you're doing, whether that's blogging, whether that's trying to pick up a particular beat as a journalist, you want to find things you care about. Now, obviously, when you're working a job, you can't always do that. But if you're doing amateur podcasting, you absolutely can do that. You want to find a topic and find themes around that topic that motivate you and, as best you can, that are less well explored. How many of you have ever found a cooking blog on the internet when looking for recipes? Yeah, it's a fairly common experience. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of cooking blogs. If you want to differentiate yourself in the world of cooking blogs, just posting recipes is probably not going to get you very far. You probably need to be doing some kind of storytelling about how you're learning to cook or doing some kind of, hey, I'm a white girl from Georgia who's learning to cook food from Nepal for my neighbors who are Nepalese, then they're awesome. That kind of a thing is going to add interest there. The same thing is true when you're podcasting. You want an angle that's a little unique. So I do this Rust programming language podcast. There are a lot of programming language podcasts out there. Now, granted, there are no other Rust programming podcasts out there, and there's some demand. So I could probably get away with doing whatever I want on that particular podcast and still have a decent-sized audience. But I picked an angle that was interesting to me. This is a teaching podcast. So here's something I'm interested in, this programming language. And I like teaching. And teaching is an effective way to learn. So I thought, here's a way that I can do some learning as I go, that I can provide some value to the Rust programming language community, and that will differentiate this. When I started it, there was an interview podcast out there where people were doing Rust interviews. So I said, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to try to compete with them. Number one, I don't want to try to steal their audience. I like what they're doing. But number two, I don't want to be competing with them. I want to get the same set of listeners they have and both of us, you know, float this boat a little higher, as it were. So I said, okay, here's my angle. I'm going to teach people how to use Rust in audio form. Pro tip, teaching people a programming language in podcast form is hard. I don't recommend it. If you're bold and daring, you can talk to me about it. It's really fun, but it's really hard because the writing process is hard. But that gives you an idea. You want an angle. Similarly, Stephen and I, though, as I mentioned, we are doing the two white guys talking about tech, you could see when we had the website up, and I'll pull it back up for you now, we're trying to do something very specific, and it's there in our tagline. We're taking the long view on technology, but not just technology, on technology, religion, ethics, and art. We're asking, how do the tech things we do, the choices we make with tech, the kinds of things we invent, shape culture in these other areas? How do they intersect with each other? And how do they do that, not just today, not just in the pundit saying, oh, the iPhone's boring because it looks just like the last one, but what does it mean that we have iPhones and that we use them basically to replace our computers and our newspapers and our libraries in some ways? 
how does that shape us as people? How does that affect the way we live in community? How does it affect the art we make? Are those good things? Are those bad things? Are there things we should say no to? We're trying to take a tack on that that is not well explored in the tech blog, tech podcast space. We haven't had huge success in terms of numbers because of that, but what we do have is a very, very engaged audience. We have a very loyal audience. We take breaks so that we can stay sane because we have families and PhDs in his case and master's degrees in my case to work on. But whenever we start back up, we have all of the same listeners. And actually, every season when we start back up, we have a few more listeners. So people are finding us along the way. And that's not a lot. We normally have 150 to 200 people download our episodes when they come out. That's small. My Rust podcast has 10 times that. But my audience is less attached than ours, even. And my Rust audience is more attached than many others, again, because we have that angle. In our case, we also, and this is really important, we let our worldview, our understanding of life, the universe, and everything shape the podcast we make. You want to do that. Now, that's going to look very differently if you're doing a podcast on ethics and art and technology than if you're making a Rust podcast. But you want who you are to shape your content because that's going to make it distinctive. So Stephen and I don't often bring this out explicitly, though when it's appropriate to do so in the show, we do. But we're Christians, and that inherently shapes how we think about technology. It inherently shapes our ethics as you know, pretty obvious. But it, thinks about, it shapes the way we think about art, etc., and both implicitly in terms of the kinds of things we want to talk about and what we want to say about them, and then also explicitly at times when it makes sense, we bring that through. And that's part of what our audience, which is not just a bunch of other Christians, we have atheists and agnostics and other people, and they like that we are very direct about, here's what we think about the world. It gives people something to engage with, and it gives people a place where if they disagree with us, they can say, well, maybe this is why I disagree with them. And that's produced some really interesting and fruitful conversations. I've got a good friend now who lives in New York City and writes software up there, who I've met in person for all of five minutes once, who I know via the internet, who's a Nigerian immigrant agnostic. And he and I have awesome conversations, and a lot of them come out of the fact that Stephen and I are willing to put forward a, a strong, strongly held view without being jerks about it, but just saying this is what we think, and we think what we think matters. Bringing that kind of real energy to your show is really helpful as you're thinking about the kind of content you want to produce. Now, again, that's going to look really different if you decide that you may want to make a Nepalese cooking show. It's just going to be different. But you're going to be bringing passion to it. And if you're a white girl from Georgia making a Nepalese cooking show, there's going to be a reason that this matters to you. Maybe it's that you just met a bunch of Nepalese people and you'd never met anyone from that region of the world before and it lit your world on fire. Let that come through. That's valuable. And it's more valuable than just, here's how you put these ingredients together. So that's how you develop your ideas for the show. What kind of a show do you want to have is the next question. Do you want to have an interview show? Do you want to have a monologue? Do you want to have a dialogue between two participants like Stephen and I do, or between four or five participants? One of my favorite shows is called The Incomparable, and they talk about basically nerdy pop culture, sci-fi, fantasy, superhero things, etc., comics, you name it, books, movies, all of that. 
And those are panels of anywhere from three to, I think I've heard six or seven people on panels. And oh my goodness, you should hear the four episodes with four different panels they did when a new Star Wars movie came out. People were crazy. I was too. We did two episodes. Don't, you know, don't make fun. Um, those kinds of considerations shape the kind of show you're going to do, and they're also going to shape how you make the content. So if you are doing a monologue show that's longer than a five-minute microcast about running, you probably have to script it. I write every word of the podcast I do on Rust because it's just too hard to talk about something technical at that level without making a lot of mistakes and flubs along the way without scripting it top to bottom. Anytime you're doing that kind of monologuing, especially if you are doing that kind of thing where you care about what you have to say, you probably are going to need to script it. At a bare minimum, you're going to need a very detailed outline. Even if you're doing a dialogue show like Stephen and I do, you probably want an outline. Now, it would be difficult at best for us to script a dialogue show. You could do it, and there are probably some shows out there which do. Certainly, if you're doing fiction, you're going to be scripting it. But in the kind of dialogue you'll see us do here in a little bit, we don't script it, but we do have a good outline of what we're going to talk about. And in that outline, we know the main points we want to bring across. We know the basic arc of the episode. We know not usually who's going to say what, but if we disagree, we generally have an idea about that ahead of time so that we know, oh, hey, we're going to have an argument about this so it doesn't totally blindside the other person, etc. Side note, people like arguments. Don't really know why that is, but both of our wives always tell us, I love that episode whenever we argue. You know, we roll with it. After you figure out that kind of dynamic, is this going to be scripted, unscripted? Is this going to be edited? Is it going to be unedited, just kind of conversational flow? Then you start working through how do we actually make this show? And frankly, that might happen at the same time. Stephen and I did what we called season zero, which was a season in which we figured out what we wanted our show to be. And we told everybody, basically every episode, we're figuring this out, roll with us. And our audience was much smaller then. We appreciated all the people and we asked for feedback and we accepted the feedback. People said this did not work. We also learned as part of that, and this is important, be willing to throw things away as you're figuring it out. We were working through our first season and even with the fact that we were still, as we said, in beta, even as we were in this spot where we thought, we're just figuring this out, it's okay, our audience will roll with it, we'd recorded seven episodes and put them out there, and we recorded episode eight. And if you look on winningslowly.org slash season zero, you will see episode seven, and then you will see episode nine, because episode eight was bad. We recorded it, we tried, we, we swung for the fences, and we struck out. I just, I'm going to swing at this. Nope. Missed. Hardcore. It was a terrible episode. We threw it in the trash. We didn't even keep it for our own sake. We just said, goodbye. This is gone. Delete. Similarly, when I started working on New Rust Station, I recorded the first episode twice. I recorded one version of it, listened to it a few times, didn't like it. So I threw it in the trash and re-recorded it. And I was much happier with it the second time around. And I had a couple friends say, this was a great intro episode. Yes. All of that to say, don't be afraid to take some time to work out what you're doing. 
that season zero for us included those kinds of big things, but it also included what is our form? We started out as a 45-minute show trying to cover three topics every week. Pro tip, that's not a good form. You might be able to pull it off if you're really good podcasters. I don't think we're that good three years in now. It's just a hard form to do. So we do one topic that's 25 to 30 minutes, and that's a lot easier to do. Figuring out things like that takes time, and it's okay. It's part of finding your voice. Then one other question to think about is whether something should be a podcast. And here's what I mean by that. There are forms that work better for some things than for others. You might find that this kind of thing just needs visuals. It should be a visual documentary. Don't make a podcast. (laughs) Make a video documentary for that. You might find, you know, this just needs long-form written reporting. Don't make a podcast. Write it, put it on a blog, or try to sell it to a magazine or something. On the other hand, you might find, I referenced that sort of long journalism bit on behind the app, making apps. That would not have been nearly as effective had it been on a blog somewhere. Even with all the quotes he got, even with all the interviews he did, it wouldn't have had the same impact as hearing the voices of people talking about the ups and downs, the struggles, the lack of surety about the market. Am I going to be able to make money off this app? Hearing people's voices has power. That show would not have worked the way it did had it been just a blog series. But he also couldn't have afforded to make it as a video documentary. It would have been an interesting one, but he could afford to set up Skype calls with all these people. He might even been able to might even have been able to send them microphones because you can mail microphones and do that thing and tell people how to set it up. He could get decent audio that way. What he couldn't do was fly around with a camera team to interview all of these people in person. That's just prohibitively expensive. So those kinds of considerations will inform whether something should or shouldn't be a podcast. And again, that's independent of form. You might find, pro tip, writing is a much easier way to teach people programming. On the other hand, people actually learn really well by hearing things. So you might be bringing value to a space by picking something that's hard to do in that space if you can do it well. Let's talk a little now about producing. The process of production is taking that raw audio, turning it into what actually ends up on the web. If you were just recording by yourself, the first part of this is pretty easy. You hook your microphone up to your computer and you click record after, I note, making sure that you have the right microphone plugged in. We have sometimes had someone, won't mention any names, not me, in our two-person podcast, uh, send audio to Skype from the correct microphone, but not into Audacity from the correct microphone. And therefore, it's been really good that when we do a two-person recording, I always get a backup of the Skype call so that we've had that audio as backup. And in general, that's a good thing to do. If you're doing a multiple-person show, record both ends and record the call itself so that you have something to fall back on. And if you're interested in doing that, you can email us. I can tell you in pretty great detail more than I have time for now, how to do that kind of recording and how actually even to split apart some of the audio tracks from that. Also, there are some services online popping up, though unfortunately they keep popping down too because they don't have business models. Pet peeve, sorry. There are services that will allow everybody to basically call in using Chrome or Firefox and 
they will give you recordings of each individual bit of audio that comes through on that and synced up. When you have multiple lines of audio, you do have to do that. You have to pull them into your digital editing station, your digital audio workstation, sync them all up, and then do whatever editing you're going to do. Lay in music if you have it. If you get music, make sure it's either licensed under a free license like Creative Commons or that you get permission. Do not use musicians' work without their permission. That's not cool. But lots of indie musicians are often happy to have their music featured in ways. So if you just email them or their press person, a lot of times they'll say, yeah, that sounds great. Just give us credit. We know that by experience because that's how we get all of the intro music for our shows. I wrote the outro music, but I can't write new intro music every week. I am not that good of a composer. Uh, so do that kind of editing. Stephen will talk a bit more about editing, but as a high-level overview, if you can cut out, like, um, 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 all the pauses and ums and likes and little clicks, you can hear from what I just did that that, that jars you. I watched a bunch of you kind of look like, what, what's wrong with him? You have the same experience when you're listening to a podcast. Like, did the speaker just lose his mind? And especially if you're doing an interview and you can make the person you're interviewing sound better, that's a really nice thing. It's a nice courtesy you can do to improve the way they sound. Always, always keep and respect them by keeping the substance of what they said the same. Don't cut things that change the substance of what they've said. But if you can cut out some ums and some clicks and some long pauses, by all means, do it. That takes practice, and Stephen will show you details of how to do that. But that kind of thing, layering in, if I tell a joke and Stephen laughs at it, a lot of times I'll pull in what I say after that, because as it turns out, listening to someone laugh for five seconds gets kind of boring. Someone laughs for 10 seconds, it gets really boring. But listening to someone start laughing for a second or two and then hearing them still chuckling while the other person starts talking again, that's totally fine. Likewise, crosstalk. Sometimes Steven and I talk over each other because we get excited and start jumping in. If you can split that out or as you're learning to do a co-hosted podcast, if you realize that crosstalk has started, you stop and then come back in. You pick up all of those things, but doing that kind of production work makes your podcast much more listenable. So do it. You'll export an MP3, and then you have to upload it somewhere so someone can download it. Your best bets for hosting things, use WordPress. It's free. There are podcasting plugins like PodPress, which give you links to the RSS feed that you need to drop it into iTunes Connect. And you go to iTunes, you can just search on Google iTunes Connect Podcast, and it'll take you right there. Or DuckDuckGo if you're a DuckDuckGo user like I am. It's an alternative search engine. It's awesome. You're all looking at me like I'm crazy, but that's okay. DuckDuckGo is awesome. Uh, Steven's just shaking his head and laughing. The iTunes is the biggest podcast directory, and it's the freest podcast directory. A lot of the other directories that exist out there reserve the right to rehost your audio, to put ads around it, etc. iTunes doesn't do any of that. They just say, Sure. Does it meet these basic requirements, which are like, do you have some podcast art and is your RSS feed well-formed? And if you're using the WordPress plugin, the answer is yes to both of those. So you're off to the races. Then you upload your file to somewhere that does hosting. The easiest places to do this are, well, the easiest place to do this is Libsyn. It's L-I-B-S-Y-N. And you can just upload there. They give you statistics for downloads, etc. You can also, if you're technically inclined, set it up on your own content delivery system or whatever else. I do that because I'm a nerd. You probably shouldn't do that unless you're a nerd. Uh, if you are a nerd, feel free to email me. I'm happy to tell people how to set it up. The uh, 
thing at that point is you put it in iTunes and say go live and then you point people to it and you're off to the races. Publishing a podcast is pretty easy. So if you do have interest in some of those other platforms, Stitcher, Google Play, etc., those are good and fine distribution mechanisms. We don't use them primarily because they do reserve the right to rehost your audio. They reserve the right to put ads before and after your audio in the midst of other podcasts you're listening to. We're an ethics podcast. We'd really like to have control over ads that get played around our show because we don't want for a second people to think that we're in support of those things. Also, just at a basic level, we think it's pretty lame for other people to be able to make money off of your content without giving you any of the money. So we don't do that, but it's certainly a viable option to consider, and that is a a way to broaden your market. We just use old-school RSS because everybody on every platform in the world, open, closed, otherwise, can get access to it. That is really everything I have to cover. Does anyone have questions on any of that? Content, audio, etc.? So the question for the recording is whether it's okay to use just one microphone for two people or do you need to get two mics? If you're recording in the same place, uh, you can certainly get away with using one. You'll, You'll have some benefits from using two, but especially in a room like this one, those benefits like being able to cut crosstalk and other things that way are going to be pretty limited because the room is echoey enough that even with the noise reduction that these do, you're not going to, like, if Stephen and I cross-talk during the episode, you're still going to hear it on the other line. So in the same room, I mean, when my wife and I record our sappy podcast, we just use one mic. It's totally fine. So. Other questions? Anything else? Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your attention.